You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. Good morning, everyone. Please turn to Romans chapter 11. Be in Romans chapter 11 today, but first we're going to talk about something else, like I like to do sometimes. So, how many of you are familiar with what we call the parable of the prodigal son? Parable of the prodigal son, almost everybody, all right? It's found in Luke chapter 15, and if you're unfamiliar with it, it's the story of a man, presumably a wealthy man, who had two sons. One day, the younger son asked his father for his share of the inheritance, apparently not wanting to wait until his father died in order to receive that. So his father gave it to him, and the younger son left home to seek a life of pleasure and ease in a far-off country. But after a while, the money ran out, and it says a famine arose in that country. No one would support him. So the young man took a job feeding pigs, and he became so hungry that he wanted to eat, says he longed to eat the food that he was giving to the pigs. Now, if you're reading this in the New American Standard Version, it says that he came to his senses. He realized that his only hope was to return home. But the young man thought that his father would never accept him as a son. And so he prepared himself to go home and to beg to be hired on as one of his father's hired men. With that thought in mind, the young man headed toward home. Now, stop there for a minute. You know the story, you're already fast-forwarding in your head, but stop there for a moment. This young man believed that he had damaged his relationship with his father to the point that he would never again be considered as his son. And in his mind, he had good reason to feel this way. When he asked for his share of the inheritance, it was as though he told his father, I wish you were dead. Not a good thing. After he left home, he engaged in what my Bible calls loose living, meaning that his father would never have approved of the things that he did and the way that he spent his inheritance. When he prepared the speech that he planned to give his father after returning home, he knew he was going to have to admit the error of his ways, saying, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. This young man regarded himself as unworthy ever to be called his father's son again. But when we return to the story, we see an amazing thing happen. The son returns home, but while he was still a long way off, His father saw him. His father came running to meet him, which we're told in that day and age was not something a a wealthy landowner would do. It was undignified. He came running to meet him, and he hugged him, and he kissed him. And and the son, he's already, he's primed. He starts to deliver his, I'm not worthy to be your son speech. But his father tells the servants, to bring out the best robe and a ring and sandals for his son, and then to prepare a banquet of celebration. And the father explained this by saying, For this son of mine was dead 
and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. That, that phrase that we see in the song Amazing Grace that we sang this morning, was lost but now I'm found, yeah, comes from this story. Now the parable is all about God's love and forgiveness, but we ought to consider this. What would have happened to the younger son if he had never returned home? It's likely that he would have remained a hired man for someone else for the rest of his life, perhaps achieving a higher standard of living than wanting to eat pig food, but maybe not. We don't really know. But one thing is certain, if he had never come home, he never would have been reunited with his father. And he wouldn't have been reinstated as a son in his father's household. And you might say, well, yeah, we know the story. Why are you telling us all this? This morning, we're going to be looking at our mini-series within the series, The State of Israel, Part 3. And as we do that, we're going to examine Paul's discussion on whether God has permanently excluded all Israelites from salvation. Initially, upon their individual rejection of Jesus Christ, God temporarily reinforced that rejection with a spirit of unbelief so that the Gentiles would have opportunity to receive and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But after it became evident that any of the Gentiles who had genuine faith in Jesus Christ could be saved, God once again opened the door of salvation to all people, Gentiles and Jews, who would accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And that's really important for the Israelites. Because in a lot of ways, they're like that younger son. They went off on their own. Well, we're not going to believe in Jesus. You know, we, we had the law of Moses, and we, want, we related to God through the law of Moses, and the sacrifices, and the temple, and the tabernacle, and that's what we're going to do. Matter of fact, we're not just going to do that, but we're going to earn salvation on our own. We're going to do it by works. And they had gone astray, much like the younger son had gone astray. And Paul has already expressed his strong desire that the Israelites would be recipients of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul wants them to come home. God wants them to come home. As we look at the state of Israel, part 3 in Romans chapter 11, we're going to see that God wants them to come home. Let's go to verse 1. I say then, this is Paul writing to the Roman Christians and talking about the Jews. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? This is a quote from Elijah, verse 3. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars, and I alone am left. And they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? God's response to Elijah. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace... 
It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Now, at the end of chapter 10, when we looked at that last week, Paul quoted from Isaiah 65, where God said, All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. In reading what Paul wrote in Romans chapters 9 and 10, some might draw the conclusion that God had permanently rejected all Israelites from being saved. But in verse 1 of Romans 11, Paul starts right off. Paul makes it clear that God has not rejected the Israelites from salvation. Paul uses himself as an example for why this is so. He's a Jew. Goes on with the Jewish qualifications in Philippians chapter 3, if you want to read about that. But he's a Jew. And initially, Paul had rejected Jesus Christ. He even persecuted Christians, persecuted the church. But God's grace was extended to Paul, and Paul believed in Jesus as the Messiah. Paul was baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of his sin. And then Paul turns to Elijah to make his point. This is from 1 Kings chapter 19. And if you go and read that story, you see that Elijah was fleeing for his life from the wicked queen Jezebel. She had sworn to kill Elijah. Elijah believed, and you've got to wonder about this for a minute, because I don't know if you ever get this way, and then you step back and say, wait a minute, that can't possibly be true. We were talking about something, uh, Rick and Ned and I were talking about something that happened with a thermos. I'm not going to get in the whole story this morning, but Ned said, that's probably the only time that's ever happened. And maybe it is, but it seems unlikely to me, because things are not that singular, right? Anyway, Elijah... Elijah believed that he was the only Israelite left who was faithful to God and who had not become a Baal worshiper. Out of all the nation of Israel, Elijah says, I alone am left. But God assured Elijah that there were still 7,000, Paul writes, 7,000 men in Israel who were faithful. That might not be a huge percentage of the population. It was 7,000 times more people than Elijah thought were faithful. That's a lot, right? Elijah thought he was the only one. God says, no, no, not so fast there, Elijah. 7,000. And God gave Elijah an assurance that they were more faithful than he even recognized. And in the same way, as Paul writes the letter of Romans, God has chosen to allow for at least some of the Israelites to receive salvation by his grace. Initially, those Jews who realized that their works could not save them and who believed in the Messiah, Jesus, as Lord and Savior, were saved by God's grace. This is illustrated in Acts chapter 2. You go back and look at the, the, the beginning day of the church. Acts chapter 2, when 3,000 Jews believed in Jesus and were baptized. Shortly after that, it says that the number rose to about 5,000 men right there in Jerusalem. These were all Jews. The initial converts, the the initial people to respond to the gospel of Christ were Jews. If God were going to reject all of Israel, none of these people would have been able to receive salvation. And not even Paul himself would have been able to. But God extended his grace to those Israelites who would believe in Jesus. And he allowed them to be saved. And we talked earlier, I think last week or the week before, that Paul, when he would go on his missionary journeys, he would go to a city. Where did he always go first? If there was a synagogue in town, that's where he went, because that's where the Jews met. And he went and presented the gospel first to the Jews, wherever he went. Okay, let's go on to verse 7. What then 
What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say again, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them, that is the Jews, jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Some of the Jews, as we've said, who heard the gospel message, believed in Jesus and were saved. But these were not the majority. When 3,000 Jews came to Christ in Acts chapter 2, we're not told how many didn't choose to believe in Jesus. The same is true for when Paul traveled on his missionary journeys. Some received Christ as Savior, some Jews, but many did not. And in rejecting Christ, they made a choice. In rejecting Christ, they hardened their own hearts against him, saying, in effect, that's not my Messiah. Now that's not good, but it gets worse. Because they rejected Jesus... God then hardened them further against faith in Christ, temporarily keeping them from understanding the truth about who Jesus is. Put up a barrier that reinforced the barrier they had put up to begin with. And he did this for a couple of reasons. One was as punishment for their unbelief. If anyone was going to recognize Jesus as the Messiah and Savior, it should have been the Jews with their heritage of God's word being given to them in preparation for Christ's coming. But most of them did not accept Jesus for who he really was. And so God took that and said, your rejection then is going to result in me reinforcing that rejection, at least for a time. We'll talk about the temporary nature of that more as we go on. Now another reason God temporarily hardened the Jews who had already rejected Jesus was so the opportunity for salvation could be presented to the Gentiles. And there's a couple reasons for that, too. First, it fulfilled God's desire that Christianity and salvation in Christ be recognized as something greater than and distinct from Judaism. What am I talking about? What does that mean? Why am I saying that? Well, the initial perception of Christianity, especially by the Roman government, but by others as well, was that it was just another sect of Judaism, just another division. Oh, all those Jews, they're just doing their thing again. They just lumped Christianity in with all the other Jewish sects. You know, you'd be a Pharisee or you'd be a Sadducee, now they got these Christian things, whatever. It's all the same. They're all Jews, as far as the Roman government was concerned, at least for a while. But the growth of Christianity without significant Jewish participation, helped establish it as something different, something distinct. And the author of Hebrews, we're going through Hebrews in our Sunday school class, the author of Hebrews goes to great lengths to show how Christ, and therefore the the following of Christ, the relationship we have with God through him, we call that Christianity, 
Christ is better, superior to that, that Jewish religion. But the second purpose there for presenting salvation in Christ to the Gentiles was actually to cause the Jews to become jealous and then to turn to faith in Christ themselves. And we'll talk more about that toward the end of the message. Let's go on to verse 13. But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, And you, talking to the Gentiles, you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Now, God's temporary hardening of the Jews, who initially rejected Jesus, did in fact favor the Gentiles for a time. And for Paul particularly, this fulfilled his ministry, since his primary purpose as an apostle was to present the gospel to the Gentiles. We already said he took the gospel to the Jews too, but his primary focus was, Go out there and spread the good news about Jesus Christ among the Gentiles. And the temporary rejection of the unbelieving Jews resulted in the opportunity for the rest of the world to be reconciled, that is, to be brought into agreement with God in Jesus Christ. Now, this is an appeal uh, that Paul also made in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In that chapter, toward the end, he says that Christians are ambassadors for Christ, appealing for the world to be reconciled to God. He said, we beg you. Be reconciled to God. Be brought back into agreement with God. And how does that happen? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there's also this whole section about the warning to the Gentiles. And I've got the second point is there's no room for arrogance. Um, Here's an illustration. Some of you are pretty, pretty young. You may still know who Muhammad Ali was. Who knows who Muhammad Ali was? Muhammad Ali, a lot of hands, that's good. Not everybody, I understand that. Okay, but for the rest of you, okay. Uh, Muhammad Ali, there he is. World champion heavyweight boxer who fought from uh, 1960 to 1981. Uh, Standing over Sonny Liston there in his first championship uh, title fight. That was the first time he won the heavyweight title of the world, however they figure that. Anyway, his record was 56 wins, five losses, and 37 knockouts. And he was not known for his humility. So if you remember Muhammad Ali, know that he, was, uh, he often proclaimed what? 
I am the greatest. Only he'd repeat it. I am the greatest. And he had all kinds of poetry and stuff that just went on to talk about how great he was. A story is told that one day, at the peak of his career uh, as the heavyweight champion in boxing, he'd taken his seat on a 747, which was starting to taxi down the runway for takeoff. The flight attendant walked by and noticed that Ali did not have on his seatbelt and said, please fasten your seatbelt, sir. He looked up proudly and snapped, Superman don't need no seatbelt. She looked right at him and she said, yeah, Superman don't need no plane. (laughs) Yeah. Take him down just a little bit. And while Ali was indeed a great boxer, he allowed his fame to affect his judgment in other areas. In 1975, he was in the Philippines preparing for uh, yet another title bout against Joe Frazier. Ali was seen in Manila with a woman that he introduced to other people as his wife. And uh, back in Chicago, Ali's real wife, Kalila, was not amused. She traveled to Manila with his assurance that it was all a misunderstanding. But when she got there, she found out that he had lied to her. And she left him shortly afterward. The greatest boxer for a time. But that's a pretty narrow slice of life. There were some other ways he could have stood maybe perhaps to be greater. In verses 17 through 21, and I say all that, this is just by way of illustration of what arrogance can do to you. In verses 17 to 21 of Romans 11, Paul warns the Gentiles against such arrogance. Did God show favor to them by temporarily cutting off the majority of the Jews from faith in Christ? Yes, he did. Does that make the Gentiles superior to the Jews and allow them to take the position that they'll be right with God regardless of whether they continue in faith in Christ? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Paul warns the Gentiles that if they turn away from faith in Christ, God will cut them off in the same way that the Jews were cut off because of their unbelief. In the end, salvation for both Jews and Gentiles is based on continuing faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Let's go to verse 23. Now, talking about the Jews, Paul says, And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so... All Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience... So these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. 
For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. And even as Paul writes this, the good news for the Jews is that there is still the possibility of salvation for them. Even though God temporarily excluded from salvation those who had already rejected Jesus as Savior, the time had come. We'll get to that in a minute. But the time had come for the Jews to again have opportunity for salvation through faith in Christ. And all that just goes to to say that God's hardening of the Jews was not permanent. As we have noted before, God's hardening of the Jews was partly for the purpose of giving the Gentiles the opportunity to receive salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. You could say that God temporarily closed the door of salvation for the Jews, those who had rejected Christ on their own, while he opened the door of salvation for the Gentiles. And Paul says that this condition would exist until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And that phrase right there seems to be a kind of a hot button for people. There is considerable disagreement about what that statement means. <clears throat> but I take it to mean until such a time as it has been clearly established that Gentiles are fully able to become Christians through faith in Jesus Christ, that the offer is open to all Gentiles who have that saving faith, and that there is no additional requirement of the Gentiles to be saved, such as following the law of Moses, which was also quite a controversy there in the New Testament uh, time. At that point, when, when the Gentiles have been fully established as candidates for salvation under the gospel of Jesus Christ, the hardening of the Jews will be removed and all Jews will be just as free to believe in Christ as all Gentiles are. And there I know, there are people that look at that and say, well, that's still a future event. That's still far off. And I think it, I think it happened already. I think as Paul writes this, it had already happened. And here's partly why I think that. Paul's use of the word now in verse 31 Go back and read verse 31. So these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, Gentiles, they also, the Jews, may now, as Paul writes this, be shown mercy. Paul's use of the word now in verse 31 indicates that the time of the removing of the hardening of the Jews had already occurred, even as he wrote those words in the mid to late 50s AD. Now, if we accept that view, I know there are other views, and I understand that. But if we accept that view, then there is not going to be some future event in which all the Jews then living will suddenly turn to Christ. And what we do have, even today, even now, is, is we, we have strong movements among Jewish people. We were talking about one of them in, in Sunday school this morning. Strong movements among Jewish people that proclaim Jesus as the true Messiah and that recognize that salvation comes only through faith in him. You can call them Messianic Jews, you can call them Jews for Jesus, whatever, whatever they prefer, whatever they want to be called. They're just Christians like all the rest of us now because it's all the same. God extend, The door of salvation, excuse me, is open for both Jews and Gentiles today and it's really the same door. God now extends his mercy to all, offering eternal life as an alternative to eternal punishment and separation from him. And he does that on the basis of faith in his son, Jesus. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches 
both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable, unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Talking about God, verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Verses 33 through 36 uh, many have labeled as a doxology, or that is the title of the point here. A doxology. A doxology is an expression of praise or the attribution of glory to someone. And, and when we're talking about this in Bible terms, we usually mean praise and glory to God. These four verses are seen as the conclusion to chapters 9 through 11, particularly, perhaps. 1 through 11 in some ways, but 9 through 11 particularly, as Paul gives glory and praise to God for God's gracious response to man's disobedience. You think about what God could have done. Did God write off mankind because Adam and Eve sinned? (laughs) Those two blew it. Sorry, guys. Out of the pool. You're all done. You're all toast. See ya. I'm out of here. God didn't do that. He could have destroyed them then and there, but even then, God had in mind the plan to provide the riches of his salvation to mankind through his son, Jesus Christ. And then you think, well, how did that play out? Was was Jesus' death on the cross some sort of accident or mistake from which God had to scramble to recover? Of course not. In God's infinite and perfect wisdom, God provided the only means of salvation possible. Substitutionary atonement. Well, it just means that Jesus took our place on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin so that we didn't have to pay it ourselves. Substitutionary atonement through the death of the sinless man who is also God. And then we're talking about Jesus Christ here. Is God now making up the plan as he goes along, waiting to see who responds to faith in Jesus Christ? No. In eternity past, God already knew who would accept Jesus as Savior and Lord. And he made plans for those people accordingly, like you, if you've already made that decision. Or if you at some point in your life will make that decision before Christ returns or before it's too late for you. Then God knew that. And God made plans for you on that basis. Paul describes God's judgments as unsearchable and God's ways as unfathomable. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't know what any of God's judgments and ways are. The Bible informs us about some of both. It just means that we would not have been able necessarily to predict God's judgments and ways from our position of limited understanding. You think about that. If you had to start back on the day of creation the first day of creation, before the first words of Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. And you had to say, well, you know, I, I predict God will do, that you wouldn't have come up with this. You wouldn't have come up with any of this. Neither would I. But God has revealed himself and his decisions and some of the reasoning behind of them. I don't think we'll, never, we'll ever know all the hows and whys of God's judgments and ways, but he's given us some insight Enough insight, I should say, sufficient for our needs and purposes. 
We may never know it all, but we can praise God that he has applied his love, grace, and mercy to us in so many ways, not the least of which is in providing salvation to Jews and Gentiles alike through his son, Jesus. Now, Paul says, you you English nerds, okay, English nerds, anybody? I'm the only one. Great. Me and Kelvin, we're, we're the only ones. <laughs> you guys are just chicken to admit it. English nerds. All right. Um, these are prepositions. Prepositions are important. Okay. Prepositions uh, give direction, you might say, in, in language. So uh, uh, you closet English nerds take note. Anyway, Paul says that all things are from God, through God, and to God. Those are prepositions, from, through, and to. God is the origin of all that exists. He's the one who created everything. He's the reason everything continues to exist. And he made everything that exists for his purposes, to both glorify him and to please him. Paul concludes this section with, to him, that is to God, be the glory forever. Amen. And we think of that word as ending a prayer. Uh, amen is a, a statement of veracity. Uh, I just had to say that. It's a statement of, this is the truth. This is the way it really is. You can count on this. Because this is, when Jesus in his uh, ministry would tell a story, often he'd begin it with, uh, if you're in King James, verily, verily, I say unto thee, Verily. We don't use that word. Okay, other translations put it more clearly in our understanding. Truly, truly. It's the same word. It's this amen. It's a Hebrew word that was transliterated into Greek that was transliterated into English. But that's what it means. Okay? Why has Paul spent so much time and effort and space, 11 chapters so far now, discussing man's relationship with God? I think it's so we could understand how to fulfill the inherent mandate that each one of us possesses, namely to glorify God in all that we think, say, and do. Paul has made it clear that we can't accomplish this without God's help. Jews and Gentiles both are lost in sin and unbelief until God extends his love, grace, and mercy to them. Calling them, what am I saying, them, us, what I mean is us, calling us back to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And in Christ, we find the ability to truly live to the praise and glory of of God. And you can think how tragic the story of the prodigal son would be if that son had never returned home. If he had never come to his senses. The desire here, as Paul focuses on the Jewish nation is for each member, each individual in that nation to spiritually come to his senses and understand who Jesus is and then come to God through faith in Christ to receive the gift of salvation. So when Jesus came into the world, go back one, I, Lost a slide somewhere. When Jesus came into the world and presented himself as the promised Messiah and Savior, most of the Jews rejected him. After his death, burial, and resurrection, 
when the church was established and the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ was preached, most of the Jews rejected him. God punished those unbelieving Jews for a time, hardening their hearts and their unbelief, allowing the Gentiles to have access to salvation in Jesus and causing at least some of the unbelieving Jews to be jealous for that salvation. Then God removed that hardening and he gave the Jews free access to the same salvation that the Gentiles had access to and under the same terms. The Gentiles have been blessed to be offered that salvation ahead of the unbelieving Jews, but the Gentiles are warned not to become arrogant because God temporarily gave them preferential treatment in this way. The Gentiles, as is true for all Christians, must maintain sincere faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, or they too will be cut off because of their unbelief. And we could all equally say, praise be to God for his love, his grace, and his mercy, which he extends to us as he offers us salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now here's something else that you might not know about Muhammad Ali. He was raised by Christian parents. He was baptized when he was 12 years old. Later, he claimed he didn't know what he was doing there when he was 12. He converted to Islam, changing his name from Cassius Clay, that was his given name when he was born, to Muhammad Ali, a name reflecting his decision to convert to Islam. He continued in the Muslim faith until his death in 2016. And when he publicly declared his conversion to Islam in 1964, Ali specifically made the statement, he couldn't be more clear, he specifically made the statement, I'm not a Christian anymore. There's no question. Now, it's not my place to judge Muhammad Ali. It's not up to me whether he spends eternity in heaven or in hell. But I will say that his choice to stop following Jesus Christ is exactly what Paul warns against here in Romans chapter 11, at least in one place. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says about Jesus Christ and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. No salvation in Buddha. No salvation in Muhammad or Confucius or anyone else but Jesus. And the salvation that we're offered in Jesus is not something that we can earn or deserve. God offers it as a gift. Once we understand that, then we face the choice of whether we will accept God's gift of salvation on his terms. And I know I say this almost every week, but that's because it's so important. God's terms of salvation, not works on our part, but requirements on his, are that we believe in his son, Jesus Christ, that we believe that he died on a cross for our sins. We believe that he rose from the dead. We believe that he's the only one who can provide salvation. God requires that we turn from our sinful way of living and commit to living life his way. We call that repentance. And we must confess our faith to others 
and be baptized in the name of Jesus so our sins will be forgiven and so the Holy Spirit will live within us. And we must continue in that faith, not rejecting Jesus somewhere down the road. If you want to accept God's salvation on his terms today, then please come forward as we stand the singer invitation song.